On November 22, 1963, the 35th president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. After the president's murder, events sped by in rapid disorder. The FBI quickly announced that the assassin was Lee Harvey Oswald, and he was guilty beyond all doubt. Then the alleged assassin was shot to death by Jack Ruby. On national television while in the custody of Dallas police at the Dallas Police and Courts Building. The record of the Dallas police in those two days were indeed remarkable. It had failed to prevent the assassination, it had failed to protect the suspect. And so, the new president, Lyndon B. Johnson, secured an order transferring the investigation from the state to the federal government and set up a special commission of investigation. This commission consisted of senators, congressmen, and administrators from both parties, assisted by professional attorneys. Its chairman was the most respected figure in American judiciary, the Chief Justice of the United States, Earl Warren. The commission, quickly referred to as the Warren Commission, knew the names of at least 266 witnesses that were present at the scene of the assassination. 259 were able to testify. 23 witnesses appeared before at least one member of the commission. 58 additional witnesses were questioned by the commission counsel, and 123 additional witnesses were questioned at one time or other by the Dallas police, the Dallas County Sheriff's Office, the FBI, or the Secret Service. 55 persons whose names were known and who were present at the scene of the assassination apparently were never interviewed by local or federal authorities. In the case of the 68 persons called as witnesses who were interviewed by the police, including the FBI and the Secret Service, the examiner forgot or neglected to ask the witness from where they thought the shots came. Of the 90 persons who were asked this important question and who were able to give an answer, 58 said that shots came from the direction of the grassy knoll and not from the book depository building. While 32 disagreed, Thus, almost two-thirds of those who express an opinion would contradict the Warren Commission's conclusion that no credible evidence suggests that the shots were fired from the railroad bridge over the triple underpass, the nearby railroad yards, or any place other than the Texas School Book Depository building. In contrast to the testimony of witnesses who heard and observed shots fired from the depository, the Commission's investigation has disclosed no credible evidence that any shots were fired from anywhere else. There is some evidence to suggest that one or more shots may have been fired from the book depository, as the Warren Commission maintained. It is considerably less compelling than the evidence suggesting that shots came from behind the grassy knoll. So which is it? The book depository building? The grassy knoll? Or both? You're listening to Conspiracy Season 1, JFK. What will you believe? Up till now, this season of Conspiracy has been pretty dense with a lot of information that's been thrown at you. I promise it's all important. It gives context to the JFK assassination and everything that follows. It will also help guide us to who committed the assassination, or more importantly, who ordered it. The hardest part for the upcoming second half of this season was deciding what is important enough to disclose or investigate further. 
As you will hear, the sheer amount of witness testimony, event evidence, or documentation is mind-numbing. While I will not be going over everything that relates to the day of the assassination, or over every witness who claims to have seen or heard something, you can find it all in various reports such as the Warren Commission, which will be uploaded to auroraborosinc.com. That's O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S-I-N-K dot com. The trip to Texas had been talked about for about a year, but wasn't finalized until June 5th, 1963 in El Paso. If you remember previously, JFK had visited the three contiguous military facilities at White Sands Missile Range, Fort Bliss, and Holloman Air Force Base on June 6, 1963, just the very next day, all of which are near El Paso. The Democrats in Texas were in discord, and Kennedy hoped a visit to Texas would help unite the party going into the next election. So, in Dallas, he decided to meet with local and state leaders for a luncheon, and as such, there needed to be a site that could cater to the needs of the visit. Three locations were discussed and considered. The women's building at the state fairgrounds, Market Hall, and the Trademark. Each had its own security concerns, but Texas Governor John Connolly would push for the Trademark, and his pressure paid off. The Trademark would be the site of the luncheon. To prepare in advance and scout the area, Agent Winston Lawson, who was on the White House detail, would go to Dallas and work with Agent Forrest Sorrells, who was head of the Dallas office, to review the area and check out the route to the trademark. The route chosen would start at Lovefield Airport, then it would make its way to West, Maine, it would turn right on Houston, up the one block north, then a left on Elm, then veering right onto the Stemmons Freeway and onto the trademark. On auroraborsinc.com, there are a few Google Earth photos that you can take a look at which will give you a good idea of the motorcade route. It is important to see the area, making the assassination easier to visualize as we progress through events. Now, once the motorcade hit Houston Street, it moved into the open space known as Dealey Plaza, which was acquired by the city for the construction of the triple underpass, which allows railroad traffic to pass over Commerce, Main, and Elm Street. Both incoming and outgoing traffic between downtown Dallas and the major freeway systems to the west is channeled through Dealey Plaza. It is bounded on the east by Houston Street. Turning north from Main Street at the historic Red Ornate County Courthouse, Houston was flanked to the east by the Criminal Courts Building, containing the county jail and the sheriff's office. On the same block to the north was the White Dallas County Records Building. Opposite the Records Building, across Elm Street, was the Daltex Building. To its west was the red brick building that in 1963 contained the Texas School Book Depository. Bisecting Dealey Plaza is Main Street, with Commerce Street branching off to the south and Elm Street curving in on the north. These three main arteries converge on the west side of the plaza at the railroad bridge known as the Triple Underpass. Facing Houston Street on the west are fountains and monuments to Dealey. On the north and south sides of the plaza are two small arbors, or pergolas, flanked on the east by a line of trees and shrubs, and on the west by a wooden stockade fence about five feet high. The order of the motorcade vehicles were as follows. At the front were some motorcycle police. Next was the pilot car, driven by Dallas police. Its job was to alert police along the route and check for signs of trouble. 
Behind the pilot car were more motorcycle police to keep the crowds back. Then there was the lead car, driven by the chief of police, Jesse Curry, with the three passengers, Agent Sorrells, Agent Lawson, and the Dallas County Sheriff, J.E. Decker. Next in line was the presidential limo. The driver was Agent William Greer. Sitting next to him was Agent Roy Kellerman. In the middle sat the Connollys, the governor on the right and his wife on the left. In the back sat Mrs. Kennedy on the left and the president on the right. Right behind the limo were four motorcycle police, two on the left and two on the right. Next came the presidential follow-up car, which had the president's assistant and eight Secret Service agents. The vice presidential car followed, and behind this car was the remainder of the motorcade, including the press vehicle. The motorcade would enter the plaza, and once the limo turned right on Houston, it drove up one block where the limo slowed down to make a 120-degree turn onto Elm, which was against Secret Service policy at the time. It forbid any turn greater than 90 degrees. The limo then moved down Elm, and Kennedy was waving to his right near a large sign reading Stemmons Freeway. Mrs. Connolly, turning to Kennedy, said, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you. According to Mrs. Kennedy, the president smiled and replied, No, you certainly can't. The next thing she knew, Mrs. Connolly heard a terrifying noise off to her right. and her peripheral, she glimpsed Kennedy raising both hands to his neck with a blank expression on his face. Agent Kellerman, sitting in front of Governor Connolly, heard a pop and immediately looked to his right, surveying the grassy knoll area. The driver, Agent Greer, said he was busy looking ahead to the railroad overpass and never looked back. He claims after a second noise and a glance at Governor Connolly, he stepped on the accelerator. But film taken that day shows the limo brake lights on until the fatal head shot to Kennedy. It appears that the limo actually slowed down after the first shot. Mrs. Connolly recalled that after the first sound, there was a second shot that hit her husband. Governor Connolly confirmed he was not hit by the first shot. Turning onto Elm, he heard a noise he thought to be a shot from a high-powered rifle. He turned to his right because the sound appeared to come from over his right shoulder, but he couldn't see anything. He began to turn to his left when he felt something strike him in the back. During the initial phase of the shooting, Mrs. Kennedy was waving to her left and didn't realize what was happening. She was accustomed to motorcycle escorts backfiring. She heard Connolly shout out, Oh, no, 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 and turned to look and saw her husband with his hand at his throat. The president was then struck in the head and fell into his wife's lap. Mrs. Kennedy would then jump onto the back of the limo. There have been many claims stating she tried to climb out of the car in panic or to help the Secret Service agent Clint Hill, who had run to the president's limousine. But actually, she crawled onto the trunk of the limousine and, reaching out, picked up a piece of her husband's head. Mrs. Connolly told the Warren Commission that she heard Mrs. Kennedy cry out, I have got his brains in my hand. Mrs. Kennedy told the commission that she didn't recall this activity, yet we have it on film and Dr. Marion Jenkins at Parkland Hospital encountered her in the hospital hallway, and she gave him a large chunk of her husband's brain tissue that she had been clutching since his headshot. Back at the lead vehicle, Agents Lawson and Sorrells both heard the gunshots, but differed in their interpretation 
as to what was happening. Lawson said that they were about to enter the underpass when he heard a loud bang to his right. His first impression was that it was a firecracker. Now Sorrells believed the first shot was a gunshot, and after a brief pause, he heard two more shots close together, and that's when he shouted to Chief Curry, let's get out of here. Chief Curry and Chief Decker would each use the car's radio to order the men to rush to the top of the underpass and the adjacent railroad yards where they believed the shots originated. Riding back near the press cars at the end of the motorcade, motorcycle policeman Marion Baker had just turned on Houston Street when he heard a high-powered rifle. He was sure it was a gunshot because he had just returned from a hunting trip and was familiar with the sound. His first impression was that it either came from the book depository or the Daltex building. He would see pigeons flying off the depository roof and so accelerate to the building's entrance. The plaza was becoming chaotic and shrouded with confusion, but the persons trained to react in this type of environment, the Secret Service agents, failed to do so. This was exactly the type of incident that they were trained for, and yet, their reactions were either sluggish or, by all appearances, non-existent. Some have gone on to note that perhaps this was due to an all-night visit to a club the night before, where they drank heavily. The only agent that reacted appropriately with any quickness was Agent Hill. He was stationed in the presidential follow-up car with the seven other agents. Most interesting is the fact that he was not originally scheduled for the Dallas Strip. He was a last-minute personal request by Mrs. Kennedy. Agent Hill believed that the initial sound was a firecracker and looked around for the source when he saw the president grab it himself and lurch forward. He immediately jumped off his vehicle and ran to the president's limo when he heard more shots. He managed to grab onto the back of the limo when it started to accelerate. He would testify that when looking into the back seat, he saw the right rear portion of the president's head was missing. Nearly everyone recalled a pause of several seconds between the first burst of fire and the final two. The last two seemed to come one on top of the other. Presidential assistant David Powers was riding with the Secret Service in the follow-up car and describes what happened as follows. I commented to Ken O'Donnell that it was 12.30 and we would only be about five minutes late when we arrived at the trademark. Shortly thereafter, the first shot went off and it sounded to me as if it were a firecracker. I noticed then that the president moved quite far to his left after the shot from the extreme right-hand side where he had been sitting. There was a second shot and Governor Connolly disappeared from sight. And then there was a third shot which took off the top of the president's head and had a sickening sound of a grapefruit splattering against the side of a wall. The total time between the first and third shots was about five or six seconds. My first impression was that the shots came from the right and overhead, but I also had a fleeting impression that the noise appeared to come from the front and the area of the triple underpass. This may have resulted from my feeling when I looked forward toward the overpass that we might have ridden into an ambush. In summary, film taken that day shows the sequence of events as follows. The motorcade curves onto Elm and begins moving slowly toward the camera. President Kennedy and his wife are smiling and waving to opposite sides of the street. 
Then the presidential limousine disappears for a brief second behind a freeway sign, and when it emerges, Kennedy is already reacting to a shot. He clenches his fists and brings both up to his throat. He does not appear to say anything, but only remains stiff and upright, sagging slightly to his left. Connolly turns to his right, apparently trying to see behind him, then begins to turn back to his left when he freezes. His hair flies up and his mouth opens. He is obviously struck by a bullet. Mrs. Kennedy, meanwhile, has placed her hand on her husband's arm and is looking at him, horrified, as he continues to sag toward her. A few seconds pass, and by now, Kennedy is bent slightly forward. Suddenly, after an almost imperceptible forward motion of his head, the entire right side of his skull explodes in a halo of blood and brain matter. Kennedy is slammed violently backward to the left rear, where he rebounds off the back of the seat and falls toward the car's floor. Mrs. Kennedy climbs onto the trunk of the limousine in an effort to grab something, while a Secret Service agent leaps onto the rear of the car, which finally begins to accelerate. The Warren Commission inferred that three shots were fired, based on the fact that three shells were discovered near the sixth floor window of the depository. But here's the thing. Witnesses would describe the number of shots fired as less than three up to more than four. This differing range of testimony makes it difficult to assess a few things on face value. One, how many shots were truly fired? Two, how many shooters were there? And three, what type of shooter was it? Professional or a non-professional? I will dive deeper into this problem when I go over the evidence in a later episode. But for now, just keep in mind that there was much confusion and witness testimonies would differ from the Warren Commission's conclusions. Now that we know what was happening in the motorcade during the assassination, we need to take a look at those in the crowd. And one of the most interesting testimonies from that day comes from a woman who wasn't even there when the president was murdered. Julia Ann Mercer was driving west on Elm around 11 a.m. that morning, and just after passing through the underpass on the far right lane, she came to a halt due to her lane being blocked by a green Ford pickup containing two men. While waiting for the left lane to clear so she could pass the truck, she watched a young man in his late 20s or early 30s get out of the passenger side. He walked back to the tool compartment attached to the truck and removed a long paper bag, and then she watched him disappear up the grassy knoll. The lawn grass area of the knoll extended down just past the underpass, and a fence that connected the railroad overpass and up to a pergola made of concrete, which sits between the depository and the underpass. She claimed she could see the outline of a rifle in the bag. When she pulled alongside the truck, she locked eyes with the driver. She described him as heavily built, with a round face, and light brown hair. Later, she stopped to have breakfast and mentioned her experience, commenting, The Secret Service is not very secret. She continued her trip to Fort Worth, when she was pulled over by police and informed of the assassination. She was taken back to Dallas for questioning. It seems that after the assassination, persons at the restaurant notified authorities about her comments and her being at the assassination site. She was questioned for several hours by both local and federal authorities and then released. But the next morning, FBI men came to her home and took her back to the Dallas County Sheriff's Office. She was shown various pictures and picked out two 
as the men she had seen, one being Jack Ruby. Now, this all happened before Ruby shot Oswald. During the motorcade, Arnold and Barbara Rowland stood on Houston near a driveway between the county records building and the sheriff's office. Both believed the shots came from down near the triple underpass, despite seeing two men, one with a rifle and a telescopic sight on the far west sixth floor window of the depository. This was about 15 minutes prior to the motorcade's arrival. They just assumed it was Secret Service. The second man they saw was an elderly black man wearing a plaid shirt in the easternmost window of the sixth floor. Multiple other witnesses testified to seeing two men in the windows before the assassination, including some jail inmates in a six-floor cell at the Dallas County Jail, which was across the street to the east. Approximately 120 feet away from the six-floor window and sitting on a concrete retaining wall that was across the street from the depository was Howard Brennan. After the first shot, he claimed to have looked up at the depository and saw a man with a rifle taking aim. He immediately rushed into the depository to tell a policeman, but later that evening, he was unable to pick Oswald out of a police lineup. The Sapruder film would end up showing that Brennan was not looking up at the time of the shooting, but was looking toward the president's limo. This will become important later. At about the time Kennedy was first hit by a bullet, two men standing near each other on the north sidewalk of Elm began to act strangely. Minutes before the president arrives, one of the men is holding an umbrella that's closed. When the limo moves into Dealey Plaza, he is now holding it above his head and it's open. Immediately after the shooting, pictures show the umbrella is closed again, meaning it was only open during the shooting sequence. Furthermore, as seen in the Zapruder film, once Kennedy is exactly opposite the man with the umbrella, it was pumped almost two feet into the air, twirled, and then lowered. At the same time, the second man, in photos he appears to be dark-complected, perhaps black or Hispanic, raised his right hand into the air, possibly making a fist. There are theories that both of these suspicious men may have been providing visual signals to hidden gunmen. This theory suggests that Kennedy was killed by crossfire, coordinated by radio men. The two men, who were among the closest bystanders to the president when he was first attacked, gave signals indicating that he was not fatally hit, and therefore, more shots were required. While almost everyone in Dealey Plaza was moved to action by the assassination, either falling to the ground for cover or moving toward the grassy knoll, several photos taken in the seconds following the assassination show that these two men sat down beside each other on the north sidewalk of Elm Street. Here, the dark-complected man appears to put a walkie-talkie to his mouth, and in a photograph taken by Jim Towner, there seems to be an antenna jutting out from behind the man's head while his right hand holds some object to his face. This is the most interesting topics to arise from the information gathered that day. What do we make of these two men? Their actions are clearly out of the norm. Film and photos from that day also show a woman on the south side of Elm Street filming. And from this vantage point, her movie would show not only the grassy knoll in the background, but also the depository at the time of the shooting. Despite the most intensive FBI investigation in history, federal authorities officially were unable to locate the woman, and for years, she was known to researchers 
as the babushka lady because of a triangular kerchief that she wore on her head that day. Despite authorities claiming they could not locate this woman, she would be located many years later by researcher Gary Shaw. The woman's name was Beverly Oliver, and she was 19 at the time of the assassination and worked as a singer for the Colony Club, the strip club next door to Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. She was stationed on the grassy triangle on the south side of Elm with a prototype Super 8 Yashica movie camera. Photos taken that day show that she filmed the entire assassination as the motorcade moved down Elm. As stated previously, she would have captured the windows of the depository as shots were fired. Clear pictures of the Umbrella Man and the Dark Complected Man on the north side of Elm and the Grassy Knoll area at the time of the fatal headshot. What Gary Shaw learned from Miss Oliver was shocking. She told him the Monday following the assassination, she was approached by two men near her work. She believed them to be FBI or Secret Service. They said they knew that she had taken film in Deedley Plaza and wanted to develop it for evidence. They claimed they would return it to her within 10 days. She never saw the film again, and officially, the FBI maintained that they failed to find her and had no idea who she was. The Warren Commission concluded that there was one assassin and that he shot the president from a six-story window in the Texas School Book Depository, which sat on the corner of Houston and Elm. The depository was a private company that acted as an agent for a number of book publishers, furnishing office space and providing warehousing, inventorying, and shipping. School systems would place orders with the publishers for textbooks, and the publishers would send the orders along to the depository where about a half dozen young men acted as order filers who would locate and collect the books as per each order. On November 22, 1963, one of these order fillers was Lee Harvey Oswald. When I go over the evidence in a future episode, we will head back to the depository and review what went on there on the day of the assassination. But right now, I want to bring to your attention two other events that happened there. The first happened around 1215, a young man collapsed on North Houston, near the front door of the depository. He was apparently suffering from a seizure. At 12.18, a police officer radioed dispatch to send an ambulance and the patient was picked up and taken to Parkland Hospital, where he was never recorded or even registered. This incident was never mentioned in the Warren Commission, and the FBI didn't investigate it until May 1964. The FBI only investigated it because it was reported to the Dallas office. An employee who worked for the ambulance company notified them that the patient disappeared after arriving and that the incident may have been planned to distract attention from the shooting. The FBI made contact with the ambulance driver, Aubrey Reich, who said he had picked up a man who was conscious and only slightly injured with the facial laceration. Reich added that in the confusion at Parkland, this man had simply walked off, Reich also said a Secret Service agent at Parkland told him to remain there because they might need his ambulance to move the president to another location. And it would be Reich who later helped load the president's body into his ambulance for the sad return to Love Field. The FBI located the patient after finding his name in the ambulance company's records. The patient was Jerry Belknap, and he had paid his $12.50 ambulance charge back on December 2, 1963. Belknap said he suffered from seizures and that day he lost consciousness 
and woke up with the police officer over him. Once at Parkland, before they could get him help, something drew more people to another part of the emergency room, and after realizing he wouldn't get immediate treatment, he up and left. Researcher Jerry Rose interviewed Belknap, who told him that he had been interviewed by Dallas police and the FBI within days of the assassination, months before the FBI's reported investigation. This incident is still looked at as a strangely convenient coincidence or as some as-yet-unknown plot to distract police and bystanders. Support for this claim comes from the ambulance driver himself. Reich, who died in April 2010, said he felt the incident was suspicious because he personally had been summoned to that same location on false calls several times in the days leading up to the assassination. In fact, there may have been more than a dozen such fake calls, a fact not immediately noticed as they were spaced over separate shifts of drivers. All requested an ambulance to be sent to the corner of Elm in Houston. Reich stated, We would get these calls for service, and I would run up there to the area by the school book depository, but there would be no one there. This happened up to 12 times in the two weeks preceding the assassination. It seemed like someone was timing how long it took for an ambulance to get there. Reich would also point out that the Kennedy motorcade was running about five minutes late, which meant that if it had been on time, it would have arrived at Elm and Houston simultaneously with his ambulance. Speculation was that this would have congested the intersection, causing the Kennedy limousine to stop, making the president a stationary target. The second incident involved motorcycle policeman Marion Baker. If you remember from earlier, I mentioned Baker. After hearing the first shot, he saw pigeons fly off the depository roof and assumed the depository was the location of the shooter, and immediately rushed over. Baker told the Warren Commission, I had it in my mind that the shots came from the top of this building. He continued, As I entered this lobby, there were people going in as I entered, and I asked where the stairs or elevator was, and this man, Mr. Truly, spoke up and says to me, I'm the building manager, follow me, officer, I'll show you. So we immediately went through the second set of doors, and we ran into the swinging door. Both men tried the elevators near the front entrance, but found them inoperable, something you should remember for later. The two men took the stairs, when on the second floor, Baker noticed a man, and with his pistol drawn, he confronted the man and ordered him to come with him. In his FBI report, Baker stated, On the second floor where the lunchroom was located, I saw a man standing in the lunchroom drinking a Coke. However, the words drinking a Coke were scratched out of his initial report, and there was no reference to the Coke in his Warren Commission testimony. Baker asked Truly if he recognized the man, and Truly said he did, and that he was an employee. Baker then turned and continued his race to the roof. That man that Baker ran into on the second floor, drinking a Coke, was Lee Harvey Oswald. Probably no small section of land in the United States has been the object of more controversy than the small northern portion of Dealey Plaza, known as the Grassy Knoll. While Elm Street and two large grassy areas of Dealey Plaza dip down approximately 24 feet as one travels the 495 feet from Houston Street on the east, the Grassy Knoll remains at ground level. Located between the Texas School Book Depository and the Triple Underpass, the Grassy Knoll provided an ideal ambush site. Running along the top of the knoll was a wooden picket fence about five feet high. In front of this fence were shrubs and evergreen trees. 
The fence ran east approximately 75 feet from the north edge of the triple underpass, then turned north for about 50 feet, ending in a parking area behind a concrete pergola located to the west of the depository. It was from a vantage point atop a low concrete wall on the south end of this pergola that the most famous home movie of all time was made, the Abraham Zapruder film. Now, despite immediate attempts to establish the school, book depository as the sole location from which shots were fired, public attention both in 1963 and even today continued to be drawn to the grassy knoll and will be further evaluated in a later episode. Just west of the grassy knoll and on the west side of Dealey Plaza is a large railroad bridge that spans the three main downtown Dallas traffic arteries of Commerce, Main, and Elm. This is what is referred to as the Triple Underpass. Just west of this underpass is the Stemmons Freeway, and it's where Ed Hoffman became arguably the most important unknown grassy knoll witness. Hoffman, a local of Dallas, had been deaf since birth and as is common with that disability, he could not speak. Despite this disadvantage, this didn't prevent him from attempting to alert authorities after what he saw behind the wooden picket fence on the grassy knoll. He told his family and friends what he saw at the time and later reported it to the FBI, but his story was ignored for years. That day, he parked his car just north of a railroad bridge across Stemmons and joined the spectators. After waiting a bit, he decided to walk along the shoulder of the freeway to a point where it crossed over Elm Street in hopes of getting a good view into Dealey Plaza. From this vantage point, he was about 200 yards west of the parking lot behind the picket fence and at an elevation of about the height of the depository's first floor. Being unable to hear, he was not aware that Kennedy's motorcade was passing through the plaza. However, he was aware of movement on the north side of the picket fence. Hoffman became aware of a man running west along the back side of the fence wearing a dark suit and a tie. The man was carrying a rifle in his hands. As the man reached a metal pipe railing at the west end of the fence, he tossed the rifle to a second man standing on the west side of the pipe near the railroad tracks that went south over the triple underpass. The second man was wearing light coveralls and a railroad worker's hat. The second man caught the rifle, ducked behind a large railroad switch box, was one of two at the site, and then knelt down. The man dissembled the rifle and placed it in a soft brown bag, then walked nonchalantly north into the rail yards in the general direction of the railroad tower. Unable to hear, Hoffman was clueless to what he had just witnessed. Moments later, Kennedy's car came into view on the west side of the triple underpass. Hoffman saw the president's lifeless and covered in blood body and pieced together what he had just seen. As the limo turned on to the Stemmons ramp below him, he tried to alert the Secret Service. An agent in the follow-up car brandished a weapon, and Hoffman stopped. He continued to look for help and noticed a police officer on the railroad bridge and walked toward him, waving his hands, trying to communicate. The policeman didn't understand and simply waved him off. So Hoffman drove to the Dallas FBI office, but only found the receptionist. He left his name and address. They never responded. After interviewing hundreds of witnesses and amassing thousands of pages of documents over the span of nine months, the Warren Commission came to the same conclusion that the Dallas police took only two hours to reach on the afternoon of November 22, 1963.
President Kennedy was fatally shot by Lee Oswald, acting alone from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building. But Oswald was not caught in the act of pulling the trigger. He was not apprehended at the scene of the crime, but was arrested some miles away in a movie theater. The assassination of President Kennedy leaves many loose threads which the Warren Commission failed to tie up. Next, on Conspiracy. We begin to look at the aftermath of Kennedy's assassination and closely examine the actual evidence and hopefully piece together who had the means, motive, and opportunity. What will you believe? This has been an Aurora Boris Inc. production. Thank you.